people tuning into the show for answers today, and um, I will give you all of the answers that I have, all of the answers that I have. Um, There's a lot going on. Normally, on a day like today, I would lead with, you know, talk about the debate that happened last night. Today is not one of those days. Because we actually have way more important news. I have a lot more pressing information that I have to give to you. Um, So the debate will have to wait a little bit. But listen, that's totally fine because we got to prioritize here, baby. We got to prioritize. In case you haven't noticed, the world is falling apart. (laughs) I'm sure all of you have noticed. So I'm going to do my best to... uh, to explain why and how we avoid it and all this really important stuff. So um, I will let you know that the debate stories are coming. Let's see. It's definitely the second half of the show. It's definitely the second half of the show. But the first half is all coronavirus and economy. So... All right, let's get it started. So there's a lot to talk about yet again. Um, I think it's fair to say the world is imploding (laughs) and the economy is imploding. And um, this pandemic that we're witnessing is as real as a heart attack. It's as real as it gets. So let me give you an update on that. 
And, um, you know, I don't know how much this helps you guys in terms of assuaging your fears, but I'll do my best to be the information man in these trying times. So these numbers here are as of last night, and there's a big caveat that I need to add as we talk about these numbers, which is this represents the official cases, the official cases of the coronavirus or, you know, as it's now being called because it's more accurate and specific, the COVID-19 virus. Um, so you can see total cases in the world as of last night, 164,167. Now, later on in the night, it already had gotten up to 170,000. Today, I'm sure it's way above that. I'm sure it's way above 170,000. And again, this is official cases, and there's an asterisk near this. So they say deaths. 6,473, recovered, 75,911, unresolved, 81,783. And you can see in the list of countries there, you have um, China had the most cases and the most deaths, but of course the outbreak, you know, happened there first. So it would make sense that they're just, you know, ahead of us in how many cases they have, um, but other countries are going to catch up. After China, Italy was the next one that was hit hardest. But again, another asterisk here is it's just because it got there first. It got there before it got to the U.S. So it's not like, you know, their numbers are bad and they will remain the worst. No, when all is said and done, this is all subject to change. Iran is also getting hammered. Official cases, 13,938. Deaths, 724. South Korea, 8,162. Deaths, 75. Now, certain countries are actually handling this amazingly, and others are not. So let me tell you, I'll tell you now, because I feel like it's so important, that this is nowhere near the actual representation of how many cases are out there. This is subject to how many tests does each respective country have? How many people are they testing? How many people are showing up? you know, to the emergency room, to the hospital with symptoms. How many are not? You know, there's a, a decent way of actually figuring out the number of cases that exist around the world is just people who've been given the test for the seasonal flu because they're showing up with symptoms that start out like the seasonal flu. And so if you don't have access to the specific test for this, you know, strain of the coronavirus, they give you the test for the seasonal flu. And, you know, on that front, our numbers are preposterous and the numbers around the world are insane. So, again, this I would say that we're talking about at least, at least, at least 10 times more than the official reported cases. And that, again, that's a bare minimum, man. That's a bare minimum. I think it's way more than that. Um, so, but what are the countries doing differently? Well, that's an important conversation. So the United States, as you can see, is 3,621 cases official right now, 63 deaths, 60 in critical condition, um, or I'm sorry, 60 in serious condition, four in critical condition, nine uh, recovered. So we don't have any tests here. We have very few tests, and we don't have the test that's done, and then you get the information quickly. We have... Um, an inferior system in many respects. I'll just say it. It's an inferior system. 
in South Korea, they have the immediate test, and you can literally go, there's like a drive-through testing center, or many of them all around the country. Here, I believe in two places, we have a drive-through testing center. One of them, funny enough, is my, my hometown, <laughs> New Rochelle, New York. Um, they have a drive-through testing thing there, but that's not thanks to Trump, that's thanks to Andrew Cuomo. Um, and then there's another one, I believe, in Washington State. These were two places that were hit pretty hard. But at least as of right now, we don't have that many drive-through centers. We need them. We need the quick test. I have a, a buddy of mine is a doctor in New York City. He's been updating me with everything that's going on. They've stopped all elective procedures, and they've said they're only treating people for COVID-19 now. And they, even in the city, they don't have the quick test. Their test takes 72 hours. And that's complicating the situation a lot more. Because if you could test somebody and find out they don't have COVID-19, then, you know, you can release them. They can go home and not clog up um, the system. And already we're at the point where our system is overburdened. We're already at that point. And so it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And right now, you're starting to see some very restrictive measures being taken. But honestly, it's too late. It's too late. What we needed to do, in all seriousness, is go into lockdown mode, quarantine mode, in like March 5th, March 4th, right around there. And then we really would have what they call flatten the curve, which is make it so that even though the cases will continue to come in, it'll be enough and spread out enough where our hospital system can handle the patients. When you let a pandemic get out of control like this one is, it's going to quickly overburden the system, and then a lot more people won't get the care that they need, and a lot more people will die. So the countries that have handled this well, Taiwan handled it amazingly. Singapore handled it amazingly. South Korea, even though they had a decent number of cases, they're handling it very well. It was literally one person who got around the original quarantine, which then led to the outbreak numbers being as high as it is. Um, I believe he, he got like an entire church congregation sick with it. But, you know, now they're, they're on the rebound. And the way that they've handled this, well, first of all, they have, they've had previous outbreaks, and so they were prepared. They stocked up on the tests. They stocked up on the ventilators. They have way more... ICU beds per capita than we do. They have, you know, the provisions in place to just like press a button, shut down the whole system and let everybody know, like, this is what we're doing for the next month. And they're able to defeat the virus in a relatively quick fashion. And because they've been through similar things before, whereas here, of course, we have a president who cut funding for the CDC and Health and Human Services and literally fired the pandemic experts in 2018. I wish I was wrong about that. I wish I was lying about that. I'm not. Donald Trump and his administration, I believe John Bolton was the one who specifically did it, they let go pandemic experts. And those guys warned on the way out the door, bad move, and now here we are. They're scrambling in real time. And, of course, they're way behind what they should be doing, and the results are disastrous, and they're going to get worse and worse and worse. So, our reaction is going to be a hell of a lot more like Iran, a hell of a lot more like Italy, where they didn't act quick enough, they didn't act swiftly enough, and the cases are going to skyrocket. And again, the official number of 3,621 K 
cases in the U.S. as of last night, way off base, way off base. It's at least at least 10 times more than that. I would say probably more because we do have a shortage of tests in this country. And I know, I've, I see it myself on Twitter. People I know have it, and they're staying inside because they're like, hey, if we don't have the tests, you know, I'm not going to go out. I'm just going to stay in, drink fluid, stay away from everybody, quarantine myself. So, yeah, this is a genuine crisis that we have here. Now, I don't want to scare people further, except that's exactly what I'm going to end up doing. Look at what Australian state news is reporting. Chinese doctors say coronavirus is like a combination of SARS and AIDS and can cause irreversible lung damage. Chinese doctors say autopsies of coronavirus patients suggest the deadly illness is like a combination of SARS and AIDS that can cause irreversible lung damage. So how does this virus function? Well, first of all, let me tell you where it came from. The reporting now is indicating that there's these wet markets in China, which is just a fancy way of saying there's um, these markets where you have all these exotic animals, all this exotic meat, and literally animals from Africa and South America and all around the world. And they're living in close quarters in cages on top of each other. And then you have, you know, all the animals like basically pissing and shitting on each other. And they slaughter the animal in real time if somebody wants meat from a certain animal. And it's suspected that there, this was from bats. So this was transmitted to a human from bats. And it had something to do, they think, with blood. So who knows exactly how it went down. Just little droplets getting in somebody, one of somebody's orifices. Orifices, weird word. Um, or maybe cutting themselves and then the bat blood getting in there. Something along those lines. And then we're off to the races. Now, this, you know, this sickness gets tra- uh, transmitted in the same way that the flu gets transmitted, influenza. So when you cough, when you sneeze, there's like tiny droplets that get in the air. And then if they, you know, if they happen to get in your body somehow, if you shake somebody's hand, for example, and then you you touch your face, you touch your eye, whatever it might be, you know, that's how you get infected. So it's really easy to spread this, which also makes it difficult. And we have, humans don't, haven't developed an immunity to this yet because this is new. And that alone makes it so much more dangerous because a lot of people are comparing it to the flu full stop. No, you know, we've developed an immunity to the flu, or many people have. And so the the flu needs to get crafty and it can only infect people, you know, during the perfect time of year, during flu season. This is not like that. There's most experts are saying that this is not just going to die out with the warmer weather because we haven't developed an immunity to it, so it could just keep spreading. Um, now, in terms of how deadly it is, it's anywhere from 10 times to 30 times as deadly as the flu. So if there's a 0.1% death rate, they say it's about a 3% death rate for this. Now, those numbers are you know, subject to go up, it's subject to go down. They do change a little bit the more information that we get, of course. And... Um, it's, it certainly has devastating effects. They say, you know, mostly the people who get impacted by it are older folks or folks with a compromised immune system or obesity, some underlying problem, but that's not the only people who get impacted by it. 
because you also have, and I know because, again, my buddy's a doctor in New York City. He's telling me that healthy 33-year-old came in, had to be intubated. He couldn't breathe alone because the virus was destroying his respiratory system. Healthy 24-year-old, no underlying conditions. Same thing, had to be intubated. So it's also impacting young folks. And it affects different people in different ways. There's a lot of talk of some people get it and they're totally asymptomatic, but it doesn't matter because they could still spread it to other people who will be symptomatic. And so that's one of the reasons why this is so dangerous, is that it takes a little bit for the symptoms to show up, but you're still able to spread it even when you don't have the symptoms. So that's why one of the main reasons why they have to shut everything down, because you could be out there, you know, like Walt Disney World was open last night. People were out there. Even if you're not showing symptoms, you could have it, and you could be transferring it to somebody who could die from it. So it's a very, very serious thing. And we are going to get to exactly what's happening in a little bit in terms of the economy and the government measures that are, you know, being taken. Because this is unlike anything. I'm 32. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And, you know, I just had a conversation with somebody who's in his 70s, and he said this is unlike anything I've ever experienced either. So this is, we're in uncharted territory here. Now, the next question is, how bad will this get? How bad will this get? Well, Business Insider reports the following. A panel of experts at the University of California, San Francisco, predicted that between 40 and 70% of Americans could become infected within the next 18 months. One uh, internist attending the panel said, assuming a 1% mortality rate from the coronavirus and 50% of the U.S. population becoming infected, that means about 1.5 million Americans could die. That's if no drug is found effective and made available. According to the panelist, accordingly, the panelists suggested anyone over 60 stay at home unless it's critical. In February, disease modelers from the CDC suggested between 160 million and 214 million Americans could be infected, and as many as 1.7 million could die. So this is bad, and you know. A vaccine would help massively. Outside of a vaccine, our only option is basically to lock down the country, quarantine the country, and do it for as long as we need to do it. But that has other consequences that are, of course, very dire as well. But the crazy thing is, even with them working on a vaccine, it's still a long way away. No matter what we do, it's a long way away. So like I said, this is unprecedented. This is a pandemic. This is exactly like the kind of stuff you see in movies. I mean, you could say maybe it's a little bit different because in the movies, you know, usually the premise is we have a disease that has like a 50% death rate or a 70% death rate, more similar to Ebola. But the thing about Ebola is it doesn't spread as easily as coronavirus spreads. And to have something spread this easily and have a death rate of that 10 to 30 times higher than the flu, that is a genuine pandemic. And so, uh, again, later on, I'm going to do it in a separate segment. This segment, I just want it to be about the virus itself. Um, but I will get to what governments are doing. Uh, I will get to what, what's happening with the economy. But my advice to everybody watching this is what I'm doing myself, which is don't go outside unless you absolutely have to. You know, um, I, I will predict that very soon, either in a state-by-state basis or nationally, they are going to do a lockdown and they're going to say the only places you can go are to the pharmacy, to the grocery store, 
or to the hospital. That's it. It's very possible that that gets rolled out soon because, again, really the only way to fight back against this, the only way to flatten that curve is to have basically a mandatory lockdown, mandatory quarantine. Um, and even with doing that, we still probably will overburden our healthcare system because we're doing it too little too late. And if you look at what happened in Northern Italy, that's what's coming here next. And what happened in Northern Italy, if you read the firsthand accounts of the doctors and the nurses who were dealing with the overflow of patients, it's a nightmare. It is like something out of a horror movie. Having to determine, hey, who gets a ventilator because we don't have enough ventilators. So sorry, if you're 85 and you have an underlying pre-existing condition, you're done. There's nothing we can do for you. I guess we got to go to the 73-year-old. Um, but, oh, look at that. Somebody just walked in and they need a ventilator and they're 66. So maybe the 73-year-old has to die too. They're making life and death decisions. And, you know, what this shows is we need a national health care system, of course, and we need preparedness for stuff like this. We spent 1.5% of our military budget is spent on the CDC and this kind of pandemic disaster preparedness, less than that even. So the fact that we have, we have fewer hospital beds than South Korea, we have fewer hospital beds uh, and ICU beds than every other developed country. And now we're seeing the chickens coming home to roost on that. This is where we should put our money. We shouldn't have to there's a shortage of the masks, of the basic masks that these doctors need to keep working. I mean, think about that, man. We're getting an emergency delivery of it from China. We're totally dependent on China for a lot of the supplies and goods and medicines that we need. This is insanity. This should really wake people up and make them rethink this and make us go, oh, okay, so maybe we need way more ventilators, way more masks, way more hospital beds, a national health care system. Right now they're saying only the testing is free. Not the treatment, only the testing is free. And even with that, it's not, it's not complete because some people are getting charged even for just the tests. And again, we have a shortage of the tests. So we were totally caught off guard. We haven't had a real terrifying pandemic hit here since the 1918 Spanish flu, which by the way, it actually started in Kansas. The only reason they call it the Spanish flu is because the Spanish newspapers were the only ones who were reporting on it because we didn't want anybody to freaking report on it. Um, so, but it started in Kansas. That's the last time we've had something this scary happen. And, you know, this powerful SARS and MERS, swine flu, those were all very bad. They didn't really impact here as much. They impacted more. Uh, swine flu in, it was Mexico. MERS and SARS were other places, I believe. Um, I don't remember, somewhere in Asia, but like this is, a, this is a terrible situation that we're in, and we were caught totally off guard. We were not prepared, and this should make people rethink our priorities quite a bit and how we approach these things, what we do with our tax money, you know, what we do with our budget, because obviously our priorities are all out of whack, and it's being exposed in such a, a clear, drastic way right now that it should piss everybody out there off. The fact that if you start feeling symptoms, you don't know, like, hey, should I go to the hospital? The fact that that's a question, the fact that you're like, they won't have enough bed, they won't be able to treat me, what are they going to do for me? That's indicative of a third world country. That's not indicative of what's supposed to be a developed country. So that's your update on the coronavirus. Again, the numbers are way higher than they're letting on, way higher than they're letting on because um, we have a lack of tests and we don't, we don't know. But this, this virus is currently ripping through the country.
So I mean it when I say stay in as much as possible, as much as humanly possible. And if you think, oh, well, you know, I have to go to work, very soon you might not have to. At least for at least for three weeks, probably way longer than that. The other thing is experts predict this could last until spring of 2021. Again, we have no developed immunity to it. So it's not just going to go away. Experts say it's not just going to go away this spring. It's going to keep spreading. So it might last until spring of 2021. So we're in uncharted waters now, and um, we're all trying to deal with it on a day-by-day basis. But I will keep you updated as much as possible on this. In the next show, I'll have another breakdown with an update in the numbers. But everybody just stay safe out there as much as possible. Try not to go out that much. Stay in and, um, you know, get acquainted with, more acquainted with, I should say, YouTube, Xbox, and whatever activities keep you safe. Okay, next. Now we're going to talk about the economy. Now we're going to talk about the economy, and this is not pretty. This is just as scary as the virus itself. The economic reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic has been absolutely mental. In many ways, what's happening with the economy is almost as scary as what's happening with the virus itself, which I know seems like a wild thing to say, but it's true. So I'm going to break this down for you. The government is currently panicking and they're absolutely pouring cash, just dumping money into the financial system, into the stock market, into the banks. So, um, A few days ago, when this stuff was really starting to explode, the market plunged. And when I say plunged, I mean the biggest single-day drop as a percentage since 1987, rivaling the 1929 Great Depression and that crash. It it lost about 10% in one day. So what did... The Fed do in response. Well, David Pakman uh, tweeted this here, and this explains it very succinctly. Guys, this is what a $500 billion subsidy, a a bailout of $500 billion got us today. Think about that. $500 billion was spent spent on what's in the blue circle. So let me explain that. That was an emergency $500 billion bailout to try to shore up the markets. And it bought us about an hour before the stock market plunged again. Think about that. That is insanity. $500 billion, poof. Hey, this will save us. This will shore up the markets. This will calm investor fears. They pump it in there. Gone in an hour. Gone. Look at how willy-nilly they throw around money when it comes to their beloved stock market, when it comes to the big financial institutions. I I don't know. We need to do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Jim Cramer, the host on CNBC, who's not that smart, by the way, was talking about how we need emergency liquidity, immediately was getting calls from the White House. 
talking to Steve Mnuchin. Guys, just so you know, ain't nobody driving this ship. They don't know what the hell they're doing. These guys are idiots. Larry Kudlow is one of his top economic advisors. Larry Kudlow has been wrong about virtually everything his entire career. I mean, we're talking about guys who are so dumb. They said before the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession that we're not in a bubble. Unbelievable stupidity. Unbelievable stupidity. So, if that doesn't terrify you enough, look at this. It's from CNBC a few days ago. Trump demands more Fed action in coronavirus response even after $1.5 trillion liquidity injection. President Trump angrily demanded that the Federal Reserve lower a key interest rate in response to the coronavirus crisis. Trump's tweet came a day after the Fed announced it would make up uh, to a massive $1.5 trillion worth of short-term loans to support credit markets and assure liquidity. So, okay. Now, so now, instead of a quick, 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 $500 billion bailouts, shore up the marketplace. Now it's, okay, no, 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 do we say $500 billion? We're going to do a $1.5 trillion bailout. Well, guess what? The exact same thing happened. Poof, gone. Gone. So I believe we had one day of the market not absolutely tanking. That was yesterday. And now today, immediately upon opening, guys, they had to shut it down within one minute of opening it. The futures dropped 1,200 points. Today, they opened it immediately, record plunge, they had to shut it down. They have this emergency system in place where when it drops too fast, too quick, they shut it down. This is now, what, the third, fourth time that it's happened within the past two weeks, three weeks? $1.5 trillion dollars. Like that. Gone. Okay. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. You live in the twilight zone, guys. I'm trying to tell you that. We live in the twilight zone. You think, when you're a kid, you think like, oh, the older people, got it. they got it figured out. They got the system working relatively smoothly. They're idiots. They don't know Dickie McGee's axe. You probably know more if you taken two years of a college course on economics <laughs> compared to them. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. Okay, so here we go. More. The Federal Reserve announced that they're cutting rates to zero, and they launched a massive $700 billion quantitative easing uh, program. So quantitative easing is another fancy way of saying bailout, subsidy. Again, they announced this before the market opened today, and the market is falling off a cliff. So I don't know. You do the math on that. $500 billion plus $1.5 trillion, So that's already a total of $2 trillion. By the way, that's the cost of the Iraq war already up front. When all is said and done, it's going to be $7 trillion when you add the interest and whatnot and you extrapolate out. But right now it's about $2 trillion. So in the course of two days, we wasted $2 trillion trying to stop a market plunge. And the market's plunging anyway. But it isn't even that. $2 trillion plus the, now the $700 billion, $2.7 trillion spent on this. And the results, bupkis. We're still plunging. We're still falling off a cliff. 
Now, you know, the effects of this are going to be disastrous, guys, because the way the stock market works, it's really like a sick trick. Because when times are good, you don't necessarily experience the benefits. The elites love to privatize the profits and socialize the losses. So you have to pay for the bailouts. You are are the one who's on the hook when things go south. But when things are going well, you're not necessarily a beneficiary. So it's, it's a rigged game. But when things go bad, you do feel the brunt of it. Because that's when the captains of industry, the elites, start laying people off. So listen, what we're witnessing right now, not to add too much to the panic here, but this is a hell of a lot more scarier than the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, which many of you guys lived through, and obviously I lived through. And, you know, there was a big decline, but it was relatively gradual. The decline we saw in the market was relatively gradual. It was over an extended period of time, and it was a relatively steady decline with a couple big drops in there, but nothing like we're seeing right now. Right now, it is falling off of a cliff. This is more analogous to the 1929 Great Depression than it is to the 2007-2008 Great Recession. Now, I mean, I guess you could say the good news is it's it's tied to the thing that popped the bubble was the pandemic. So it's, it's easy to conceive of a situation in which the pandemic didn't happen, in which case we wouldn't be in this situation with the market. But, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, we can make up a fantasy world or we can live in the world that we're in. Um, so what do you do? That's the next question. What do you do? Because this is, this is catastrophic. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be a lot of pain out there, a lot of suffering out there. Um, and we have to do something to ameliorate that. And, you know, these people aren't even going to be able to work. People who lose their jobs aren't going to be able to look for a new job because, oh, yeah, there's a pandemic that's killing people out there. And everything's about to go on lockdown, on quarantine. So what do we need to do? Well, first of all, other countries, I think Switzerland uh, unveiled their package um, to deal with this. And the government's paying 75% of the wages of workers. And then the, the businesses are picking up. 25%. Um, So that's one way you could go about it. In my opinion, here's what we need to do to deal with both the pandemic and the stock market crash. First of all, we need a total ban on all non-essential gatherings. Now, France did that. Spain did that. New York City just announced that they're doing that. Ohio's doing that. Um, I think it either needs to happen across the country, either on a state-by-state basis, or you just have the federal government say, listen, a month, everything shut down skis. And when I say everything, I mean all non-essential travel and gatherings. So, you know, it is what it is. We have to deal with the crisis. And this is the only way to make sure you flatten the curve and don't overburden our healthcare system. And it's already probably too late and we're going to overburden it, but we have to put the brakes on right now, right now. So, I would do a ban on all non-essential gatherings and travel. That means you could only go really to the hospital. You can go to the grocery store. You can go to the pharmacy, and that's pretty much it. Um, That's one thing I would do. The second thing I would do is immediate moratorium on bills. So the big ones, you know, the student loan debt payments. They said, oh, you don't have to pay interest on that. 
no, you shouldn't have to pay that, period. People don't have the savings to pay that if they're not working and they can't work. So, you know, moratorium on that, moratorium on uh, paying mortgages, all these major bills that people have to pay, we have to press pause. And, and listen, uh, that gets to a bigger issue that I've been screaming about. People thought I was joking. I'm not joking. We need a, like a built-in, from now on, you need to lay the groundwork for having the option of an emergency economic pause button, an emergency societal pause button, where we are prepared for something like this to happen in the future. Because now, cat's out of the bag now. It's gonna, this is going to happen again at some point. It's not, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So we do need like an emergency pause feature on society and on the economy. That sounds silly, but actually when you think about it, it really doesn't. It actually seems like a relatively straightforward idea that would have made a lot of sense to have in place for a situation like this. So on top of freezing those major payments, which by the way is not unprecedented, other countries are doing, I think Italy put a pause on their mortgages. So but I would also do an emergency UBI bill. What Congress did is, and this is shameful that they did this, but they got together, they said, okay, great. See, we did a, a bill, emergency bill for uh, paid sick leave. Well, you read the details of it. Guys, they exempt corporations with over 500 people, and they exempt you know, businesses with under a certain number of employees as well. So the paid sick leave, emergency paid sick leave, only goes to 20% of workers in the country. Guys, there's a pandemic. You can't, like, all these, like, cutesy little loopholes that you're doing to try to protect your donors, you can't do that. The pandemic is not going to discriminate. They're not going to abide by your freaking loopholes and go, oh, I will only affect the, you know, the people, the corporations that have less than 500 people. What are you doing? You're putting at risk 80% of the workers in this country? Do you not grasp what is happening right now? It's a pandemic. So, you know, instead of a mealy mouth, stupid little Weasley, and by the way, the Democrats were bragging about this. Oh, see what we got? That's, so the only concessions you got from Republicans were 20% of workers get paid sick leave. No, in that situation, what you do, Nancy Pelosi, if you cared and if you knew how to play politics, and if you actually believed in this position, which she doesn't because really she's Republican light, but what I would do is pass the bill that has paid sick leave for everybody in the country and then make them vote against it. And then when they vote against it, are you kidding me? Holy hell will rain down on the Republican Party. They'll say, we have a pandemic and the Republicans just voted against paid sick leave. Are you insane? No political party could withstand the insane amount of pressure that they would get in that situation. But Nancy Pelosi doesn't care. She'd rather protect the Republicans because she kind of agrees with the Republicans. She doesn't want to see the entire economy come to a halt, even though it would save lives if we do that. She's like, yeah, sure, 20% is fine. 20% of workers get paid sick leave. No, what I would do is it's not even paid sick leave. You do an emergency UBI bill, an emergency UBI bill, because if we're doing a total ban on all non-essential travel and gatherings, well, first of all, the time frame should be at least a month, but okay, do an emergency UBI bill that lasts for the same time frame. And the other thing, of course, this is a no-brainer, and other countries are laughing at us for not having this in place already. Not only should the test be free, the treatment should be free. Obviously, you can't have a system where, you know, somebody is feeling sick and they feel like, well, I don't have paid sick leave. I got to go to work. And also, if I get more sick, I, I'm, I can't go get treatment because I can't afford it. You're, 
this is, you know, prime territory for a disaster because this person is going to infect so many more people because they feel like they have no option but to suck it up and go to work. Everybody is in danger because of how terrible our system is. Do you understand that? The lack of paid sick leave and the lack of universal health care makes everybody, everybody in this society, doesn't matter how rich you are, you're in more danger as a result of it. So that's the other thing I would do is an emergency UBI bill. Make sure treatment is covered. Um, and also a moratorium on evictions. And I believe uh, Governor Cuomo announced that in New York. There may be others who announced that. I know Gavin Newsom is doing a similar thing to what New York is doing. We're kind of banning all non-essential gatherings. Trump is considering a national curfew at the moment. Listen, what we need to do, if we actually are serious about tackling this, it is effectively, and this is the final piece of my proposal, a pause on the stock market for a month as well. It is effectively pressing pause on the economy and society and the world, pause on it, quarantine and lock down everything, and make sure people will be okay and will get through with the emergency UBI. So you get rid of all the major bills for a month, give the emergency UBI, and basically, you know, people will get to stay in and watch YouTube and watch Netflix and play video games, and that's how we spend the month, and we save lives in the process. So, listen, that's the way I would handle it. Um, I Honestly, I think one of the biggest problems is because corporations basically own our government, they've bought our government, they do not want to see everything come to a halt, everything get locked down, because that means no profit for them. So they want to kind of stay in business and, and drag on and do their best to keep clawing profits. But, you know, that is so, so dangerous at this point in time. And I would actually argue to the owners of these corporations you will net make a hell of a lot more money if we just press pause on everything right now. Press pause on everything for at least a month. Okay, do the emergency UBI. Do the moratorium on all those bill payments. Do the ban on all non-essential gatherings and travel. This is our only chance to fight back against the pandemic since we don't have a cure, we don't have treatment, we don't have a vaccine. This is our only chance to fight back. And also, I think it's the only chance to avoid an even further economic meltdown. If we're just going to, you know, how can we like semi-pause society, which is what we're doing right now. People are panic buying and a lot of people are staying in and we're like semi-pausing society. But the market's going to be open and continue as if, you know, it's like a normal time. Of course, you're going to see, you know, the market tank. Society is, is going through a crisis right now. Obviously, it's going to tank. So you should press pause on that as well. So I, all, these like, all these half measures are making the situation way worse from an economic perspective and from the pandemic perspective as well. You need bold, decisive action. You need strong leadership. And you need policies that we know will get people through this crisis. And... Um, I think eventually they will be forced to accept a similar situation to what I'm describing right here. They certainly won't do everything I want them to do, and they certainly wouldn't do it right now, which is when I want them to do it. But they should. They should. They will be dragged to a position where they start these things too late or some of these things too late 
and people will continue to suffer. Many people are going to die. Many people are going to get infected. And um, this is like a nightmare scenario. I don't even know. The fact that a lot of states are allowing the Democratic primary to proceed tomorrow is insanity. Shame on every election official who said, yeah, we're going to still have our vote tomorrow. Then you're going to get more people infected. That's the way it works. And I hope you get sued when they do get infected. You can't say the CDC already recommended no gatherings of 50 people or more. And then you're going to have an election? No, that's not okay. So it's a mess, guys. And um, I'll keep you updated. And uh, just prepare for the worst because we're currently witnessing it. Okay, next. All right, I'm going to show you guys what the right-wingers... What the right-wingers are saying... I take no pleasure in showing you these next videos, but right-wing boomers and Christian fundamentalists are basically refusing to take the COVID-19 outbreak seriously. And here they are. You're going to see a bunch of dangerous recommendations as well as conspiracy theories. concerns with the economy here because people are scared to go out. Uh, but I will just say, one of the things you can do, if you're healthy, uh, you and your family, it's a great time to just go out, go to a local restaurant. Yeah. Likely you can get in get in easily. There's, you know, let's not hurt uh, the working people in this country that are relying on wages and tips to keep their small business You know, going. we're very so sympathetic. Don't run to the... Don't run to the Understood. Yeah, just don't run to the grocery store and buy buy you know four thousand dollars of food. Right, they're go, off you know, the go to your local uh, local pub. Well, yeah. be- I know they don't want us to do this, but just turn around and greet two or three people. Tell them you love them. Jesus loves them. Amen. Listen, this has to be the safest place. I said this has to be the safest place. If you cannot be safe. In church, you're in serious trouble. We are not stopping anything. I, I got news for you. This church will never close. The only time the church is closed is when the rapture's taken place. This Bible school is open because we're raising up revivalists, not pansies. You know, it, it's, it's just strange to me how so many are overreacting. The H1N1 virus in 2009 killed 17,000 people. It was the flu also, I think. And there was not the same hype. It was, uh, you just didn't see it on the news 24-7. And it makes you wonder if there's a political reason for that. It's, it's uh, you know, impeachment didn't work, and, and the Mueller report didn't work, and, and Article 25 didn't work, and so maybe now this is their their next uh, their next attempt to get Trump. But 
but I had a, uh, the owner of a restaurant asked me last night, he said, do you remember the North Korean leader promised a Christmas present for, for America back, back in December? Could it be they got together with China and this is that present? I don't know. <laughs> but, but it really is something strange going on. What do you even say in response to these people? What do you even say? Notice the contradiction in what Jerry Falwell Jr. was saying there. He starts out with, well, obviously this is a hoax, and the Democrats' impeachment gambit failed, and so did the Mueller report, and so now they're trying this. He goes from that to, or it could be North Korea with a biological weapon. Which is it? Is it, is it a hoax that's overblown, or is it a biological weapon, which means North Korea just declared biological warfare on us. Which one is it? Doesn't need to make sense. Doesn't need to make sense. The only thing that he will not permit himself to say or believe is this is a pandemic. Pandemics happen. And Donald Trump and his administration were not anywhere near prepared. The country was not anywhere near prepared. And so it's about to be a mess. So in other words, Occam's razor, he does the opposite of Occam's razor. <laughs> Occam's razor is whatever the simplest explanation is, is probably correct. This guy's doing the opposite. Let's get the most convoluted, absurd explanation and go with that. By the way, guys, I mean, listen, you know, I was the strongest critic on the left of impeachment and the Mueller report. And I'm here saying this is a pandemic. This is real. Duh. But he's like, nah, this is a democratic hoax. No, it's not. No. Oh, God. Oh, God. They think everything that makes Trump look bad is a Democratic hoax. No, this is just he was unprepared. He, he cut the funding for CDC and Health and Human Services, um, and he fired the pandemic experts. Yes, stuff like this is going to happen. We don't have anywhere near as many hospital beds as we need in this country or ventilators or masks. This is all a problem. And the lack of preparedness is now being exposed because we have a pandemic on our hands. Oh, my God, man. Oh, my God. Wow. So um, the other people are just as pathetic. You had uh, the head of a church in Tampa, Florida, talking about, hey, we're not pansies. That's why we're here. It doesn't matter how, like, tough you think you are and how weak other people, how weak you think other people are. Dude, this is a virus. It's a pandemic. It's not like, it doesn't matter what your mindset is towards it. It's going to get you if you're out in public in crowded places. And he even says, hey, everybody shake hands, you know. We're not supposed to do this, but go ahead and do this. It's like, what do you do in a situation where even if you provide everybody with a totally sober, coherent analysis and breakdown and give them intelligent, you know, intelligent guidelines moving forward on how to act and what to do and how to not get the virus. What do you do when people are just too ignorant, too dumb to be like, okay, I will take these basic precautions. What do you do? There's nothing you can do. And then these idiots are going to lead to the healthcare system being overburdened. It's already about to be overburdened right now as I'm speaking to you because they're not taking this seriously. I saw Walt Disney World is shutting down today, but last night it was packed. Guys, the, I know the virus isn't going to, you know, abide by your rules and your time frame. It's still going to spread like crazy if you go yesterday. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. 
Um, and then the other one is right wingers telling people, "Oh, go out, go out to a restaurant. There's not many lines. It's awesome." You're you are speaking out against the guidelines from the experts. The CDC is warning against that. The CDC is saying stay in, stay inside as much as possible. Don't go to places with 50 people or more at all. A lot of places are on lockdown now, and soon the whole country will be on lockdown. The fact that they're casually saying the opposite, it means you just don't know what you're talking about. They just don't know what they're talking about. And notice the concerns are more economic. They're like, well, you know, what are we going to do? Don't punish the hourly, you know, workers. Well, no, how about you don't punish the hourly workers, and Congress shouldn't punish the hourly workers, and you should pass an emergency UBI bill and let people stay at home for at least a month, which is where they should be, to try to not get sick. So you guys are the ones who are screwing over workers. Congress is screwing over workers with their nonsense, middle ground proposal of only 20% of workers get paid sick leave when the entire country needs it right now. That's why we need an emergency UBI bill and to press pause on everything for at least a month. Wow, man. They don't get it. They don't get it. You had Rush Limbaugh the week before, a Fox Business host the week before, doing their rants about how this is all a Democratic hoax and this is all overblown to try to make Trump look bad. And even Trump is out there saying, okay, no, this is serious. And they're like, no. Oh, God. However bad you thought society was, however terrible you thought the way we organize stuff is, it's worse. <laughs> it's worse. There's no doubt about it. You're witnessing it right now, and it's only going to get even worse than what it is. Okay. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, while nobody is watching, what Trump is doing with the corona with the coronavirus is insane. And then we have uh, voter suppression happening in real time. So stay right there, guys. We'll be right back with all that and more. Long show today because there's a lot of stuff going on. I will get to the debate breakdown a little bit later, but hang in there. We'll be right back.
Sorry, y'all. I'm back. I am back, and there's still a lot more to discuss. Because the world is falling apart. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I don't want the coronavirus. Alright, where was I? Um. Oh, okay. Yeah, this one, this one is definitely a story you haven't heard about because of all the madness going on here at home. <clears throat> here we go. So while nobody was watching, this is what Trump decided to do. As coronavirus pandemic sweeps the globe, Trump authorizes new bombing campaign in the Middle East. This moment is the last three decades of U.S. foreign policy in miniature. Spare nothing for war and military dominance and find little to spare for true threats like climate change and a pandemic disease. Authorized by President Donald Trump, U.S. forces late Thursday carried out a wave of airstrikes across Iraq purportedly targeting an Iran-linked militia that the Pentagon claims was behind a rocket attack that killed two American service members earlier this week. The the airstrikes risk sparking yet another dangerous escalation of military tensions between the U.S. and Iran at a uniquely perilous moment. Both nations are struggling to contain and combat the novel coronavirus, with Iran hit particularly hard by the pandemic as it works to muster adequate medical resources while in the vice grip of Trump administration sanctions. The Trump White House, meanwhile, is under fire for bungling its response to the outbreak and failing to devote sufficient government resources to fighting COVID-19, which has infected over 1,400 people in the United States, a number that experts say is likely to rise dramatically in the coming days as the disease spreads and the remarkably slow rate of testing picks up speed. All right, um, so there's a lot to say about this. First, let's talk about the sanctions, because that's not discussed enough. These sanctions, by the way, Bernie Sanders was one of the only senators to vote against this sanctions package. One of the only senators to vote against it. And he's taking crap for it, because they're trying to say, hey, Bernie, why are you being so nice to Russia? Because in that same bill... There was also a Russia-related provisions as well. So Bernie was like, listen, I can't, what am I going to do? I can't, this would be us violating the Iran nuclear agreement, so I'm not going to vote to add sanctions on Iran. That's crazy. So he was one of the only ones who had a spine, had a backbone. May have been the only one, although I don't know, maybe like Rand Paul also didn't, also voted correctly on this, but I'm not sure, to be fair. But He's one of the only ones who said, yeah, I don't want to sanction them because this violates the Iranian nuclear agreement, and it's murderous. And it turns out that was totally true. Guys, they can't get a lot of the medicine that they desperately need because of our sanctions on them. For Trump to not lift these murderous sanctions during a pandemic means he's totally fine with wiping out large swaths of the Iranian population. Some of them, we have a mask shortage here. They have an even bigger mask shortage. So... For them to not do the right thing on this front is really, I mean, there's no other word to describe it. It's evil. What they're doing is evil. Really, at a time of 
a global pandemic, you can't say, you know what, we're going to lift the sanctions. They can and should get the medical supplies that they need. Not doing it. Can't get the ventilators. Same, same thing. So it's unbelievable and it's terrible. And it is an act of war. Make no mistake about it. It's an act of war. I've literally seen tweets, people who live in Iran. Hey, my family just died because we couldn't get the treatment we needed. Okay, so that's bad enough. But now he's doing another bombing campaign. Guys, he killed another top Iranian military commander. And this was barely discussed because of all the mayhem going on here with the coronavirus as well. This wasn't discussed. And there's been back and forths now. So there's been, you know, one person escalates and the other person escalates. Then one person escalates and the other person escalates. And then, you know, we're tumbling towards a hot war with Iran. At the same time, we got a freaking pandemic going on here. Now, I already told you, but I'll tell you again because it's an important fact and people don't know it. We spend 1.5 of our military budget, 1.5% of our military budget is spent on the CDC. Guys, a pandemic is just as big a threat, if not a bigger threat, than getting attacked, than war. Honestly, you guys know where, where the bully in the global, on the global scene right now. But the fact that we can bomb eight different countries as we're doing, we can try to nation build as we're doing, and we can't have clean water in Flint, Michigan, and we don't have enough beds during a pandemic or ventilators during a pandemic or tests. It shows you how terribly mismanaged the empire has been all along. These people don't know what they're doing, and they don't care about you, about your suffering. Really, this is, I mean, this is beyond terrifying stuff because... To have your resources going towards war with a helpless country at a time when there's a pandemic, that means he's having meetings behind the scenes. (coughs) I do not have coronavirus, I promise. There's something in my throat. (coughs) There's like... I feel something in my throat, like a thing, not, I'm not, it's not coronavirus cough, I promise. It's still there. During a pandemic, when nobody's watching, to to escalate yet again, Holy fuck, it's still there and it's not going away. I fucking hate it. God damn it, guys. God damn it. My voice is giving out and now everybody thinks I have coronavirus. (laughs) I promise you I don't. I have zero symptoms. It's just something stuck in my throat. Mm. La 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 la. When I talk at certain, like, decibel levels, I'm fine. But then other decibel levels, I feel the thing in my throat. Anyway, to focus on this at a time when we need all the resources here, at a time when the market is tanking and we're about to go into total lockdown mode and quarantine mode in the country, 
if that doesn't show you bad leadership, bad management, I don't know what does. Apart from the fact that this is a fight that we are picking and that we are the aggressor, it also just shows we're led by complete morons. I mean, I had a, a, a little bit of a light bulb moment the other day when all this bad news is rolling in about the pandemic, all of it, you know, hour after hour. And Trump goes on Twitter and he starts doing a dick measuring contest with Biden and the Obama administration and talking about the death toll for H1N1 was higher. It was a worse pandemic. We're getting unbelievably high marks on how we're, how we're doing with our pandemic. And it's like, bro, we literally have a shortage of tests and ventilators and masks, and our healthcare system is about to collapse all across the country. And you're out there saying, I'm still better than Obama, right? I'm still better than Obama and Biden, right? Do you guys like me? It just shows a totally unserious person is leading us during a national crisis. And that absolutely should terrify you. And, you know, it's the old Naomi Klein move. This is the shock doctrine. Use a crisis to push through the reform that you've always wanted to push through. He's using the crisis now to distract from the hot war that all the neocons have always wanted with Iran. So... This is the worst case scenario, and it's a worst case scenario across the board, and I don't say that lightly. Okay, next. <clears throat> Alex Jones. Alex Jones was recently arrested um, for DUI. Now, I hope he gets better. I don't want anybody to, uh, anybody's life to be in danger because of uh, his actions. But with Alex Jones, even if he weren't driving under the influence, he would still be putting people's lives at risk. And here's what I mean by that. New York Attorney General threatens legal action if Alex Jones keeps telling viewers his toothpaste can cure coronavirus. On Thursday, New York Attorney General Letitia James announced that she was threatening legal action against far-right conspiracy theory broadcaster Alex Jones if he continues to claim to viewers that his line of toothpaste, creams, and dietary supplements can cure coronavirus. She said, I ordered Alex Jones to immediately stop selling and marketing products as a treatment or cure for coronavirus on his website. If he doesn't cease and desist these activities immediately, I won't hesitate to take legal action and hold him accountable for the harm he's caused. She continues. She says, Mr. Jones has been marketing and selling toothpaste, dietary supplements, creams, and other products as treatments to prevent and cure coronavirus. He even fraudulently claims the U.S. government has said his toothpaste, quote, kills the whole SARS corona family at point blank range. Point blank range. Mr. Jones' public platform has given him a microphone to shout inflammatory rhetoric. But these latest mistruths are incredibly dangerous and pose a serious threat to the public health of our nation. You know, when I read a story like this, it's just... You would think that having a system that values freedom of speech 
would mean that people are a little more cognizant of what they say to, you know, ensure that they don't cross a line. Because that's the thing is there really aren't many lines. If you really have a country that believes in free speech and a system that values it, as I think we should, then, you know, don't take it for granted. And what does he do? He somehow manages to find like the few lines that you can't cross. And he's like, I'm going to cross that. Now, I've famously defended him when he was getting all the social media companies were banning him. And basically, I was saying, like, look, if he said anything in particular that really does cross a line where it's libelous, it's slander, whatever it might be, it violates the few rules that exist. Okay, take down those specific videos. Instead, they were banning him completely from these um, social media sites. And I don't think that's okay because I think that sets the precedent that it's a slippery slope and eventually, you know, they'll look at people like me and say, oh, he's extreme because, you know, he tells the truth when it comes to the DNC rigging the primary or whatever it might be. That's just one example. But, you know, so I defended him in that respect because even though he's dangerous and even though he says crazy things, okay, if he happens to break any rules, those specific videos can be taken down, but you can't say everything you've ever said and everything you ever will say, we're banning you. I think that's insane. Here's an instance where, like, if there were videos that he had up on YouTube and he was specifically saying this stuff cures coronavirus, yes, I would take those videos down. Because that is absolutely, that could lead to material harm for people. The fact that, you know, a, a lot, what a lot of these far-right characters are currently saying, hey, go out, you know, don't listen to the warnings, um, frequent the local pub, like, this is dangerous, and it's against the CDC guidelines, and it absolutely will lead to the, the virus spreading and more people dying as a result of it. To, to say this goofy product that you have cures the coronavirus when it doesn't, and you're getting wealthy off that, guys, I, that is a textbook case of fraud. That's just fraud, what you're doing, Alex. That's all that is. Hey, I'm selling something and saying it does this, and then it doesn't. And in, in the case of medicine, it's particularly egregious. Because when you watch, not to defend the big pharma companies, because I'd never do that, when you watch a commercial for a new treatment, what do they do? They tell you the treatment, and then they say, side effects may include, and they go through all the side effects. And they're legally required to tell you everything that might happen if you take that drug, even if it only happens in 0.1% of cases. So why is it they get the strict rules and regulations, but Alex Jones is able to go out there and lie and say, my toothpaste cures the coronavirus? It's like that dude, what's his name? I think Peter Popoff is his name. He's like a televangelist dude who claims that his holy water cures cancer. I mean, these are just, these people are the scum of the earth, man. They're just robbing from poor, uneducated people who are desperate. And Alex Jones is taking advantage of people who rightly distrust the system, but he's like selling himself as, you know, only trust me. I'm, I'm the answer here. No, you're a fraud and you're misleading people. And, you know, I'm a free speech absolutist. And again, I would have never totally banned him from all these, these um, social media sites. But when you do stuff like this, what he's doing is proving the point of his strongest critics, 
his strongest critics who say, no, this guy should be totally out of polite society. There's no, nobody should entertain him for a split second. You should suppress him. That's what his strongest critics say. Well, when you go out there and pretend like your freaking toothpaste and your supplements cure coronavirus, congratulations. You just gave your strongest critics ammo, and they're correct in this instance to say, we can't allow this, man. How many people does he have to listen to his show? Millions, right? His show's at least as big as mine, probably bigger, because he's been doing it for a hell of a lot longer. And you think you could just casually go out there and say, you have a cure for coronavirus? Come on, man. Have some decency. Have some modicum of shame. Have some basic respect for your audience. Because you know that he knows this shit doesn't do that. You know that. You know that. Does he actually think his toothpaste and his supplements cure it? Come on, dog. Come on. So, yeah, I would, you know, they're, they're threatening the lawsuit. I don't know why they don't just do it. And I don't know why it's New York, to be fair, because I'm pretty sure he's based in Texas. So I don't know why the, Texas, why the Texas Attorney General doesn't go after him. I guess, technically, if somebody from New York buys it, or I don't know. I really don't know the legality of the situation. But listen, bottom line is, take that down off your website and do it ASAP. Because it's one thing to speculate about the nature of conspiracies and say, you think this crazy thing happened or that crazy thing happened. And some small percentage of the time he's right, and he gets some conspiracies right. Most of the time he doesn't, and he's dead wrong, and he's dangerous, the stuff he's spreading. But it's one thing to just have conversations and speculate about how wild and you know, how, down, how far down the rabbit hole you want to go in terms of conspiracies. It's another thing to commit fraud and put people's lives in danger. And that's exactly what he's doing right here. Okay. We shall move on, bitch. I think I'm still going with the corona. Wrong, I'm not. Oh. Now we're going to talk about elections. This isn't the debate stuff yet, but we're getting closer, guys. Hang in there. With the world falling apart, you need to get to that first. An Arizona election director for Maricopa County was announcing the shutdown of over a third of polling places in the county. And during his speech, during his announcement here, this happened. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So I just want to let everyone know that uh, we've been working very diligently in the last several months to implement the Board of Supervisors approved election day and emergency voting plan. Uh, But in the last several weeks, there have been some issues with us being able to identify enough supplies, whether those be cleaning supplies, and then we also had some polling locations fall out um, over the last few weeks. So last night with the board, we made some, uh, the board made a decisive action to approve 
a plan and give me the direction to be able to reduce the number of voting locations that we would then be able to provide those voters in those voting locations with the supplies they need, those cleaning supplies, those sanitation supplies that we can then disinfect those high-touch surfaces in those polling locations. So those voters, if they wanted to vote in person, they'd be able to have that, uh, that polling location be available to them, and then our poll workers would be able to make sure that all those high-touch surfaces were cleaned. So what this plan does is that we've had 229 polling locations available um, prior to the plan, and then after the, the board's vote, I went and performed an analysis to make sure that all those voters had uh, 151 vote anywhere vote centers. This now, we're taking this from those voters had 41 voting locations before these 151. Now they have um, 50, 151 vote locations that they can choose from. And then with that, um, we're also going to be um, providing uh, those voters with uh, uh, the options and the ability to, uh, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I'm sorry, I can't do this, is what he said. So listen, uh, there's only two options there. One option is he thinks people are being put in danger by voting. And so any announcement outside of, hey, we're postponing this, he doesn't feel comfortable doing. That's one option. Uh, he thinks the virus will spread if they hold the vote, and so he's not comfortable with that. The other option is he knows he's partaking in voter suppression because what they're doing is shutting down over three-quarters of the polling places. Now, they're acting like, oh, because we don't have the cleaning supplies to deal with the other places, but it's a bigger risk the fewer polling places you have. Because the fewer polling places you have means more people have to go to those polling places, which means bigger crowds of people at one time. If anything, it should be emergency. If you're going to have the vote, which you shouldn't because of the, the pandemic, um, you should have more voting places and disperse the crowds of people more so you keep the gatherings smaller. I mean, that's obvious. It doesn't make sense. So either he feels like people are in danger and he wants to shut it down, but they're not announcing shutting it all down, or he's like, wow, they're sending me out there to do the announcement that we're basically doing voter suppression, but they want me to BS. They want me to dance around it and say, oh, we have to do it this way because of reasons and stuff and things. And he's totally uncomfortable with that. But he looks nervous the entire time he's talking, the entire time. And this dude has a conscience. And I'd love to hear exactly what's going on in his head, why he's panicking, why he's not comfortable doing this. And I don't know which answer it is. It's either doesn't want anybody to vote because of the virus or he realizes he's doing voter suppression. So everybody understands, just so everybody understands, Republicans do voter suppression against Democrats because the lower the turnout is, the more likely it is Republicans win. Because Republican voters are generally speaking older and they come out every time. If turnout is high, that means young people turned out. Republicans want to stop that. So they want to put hurdles in the way. Um, you know, part of voter ID is to disenfranchise poor voters and minority voters. So Republicans do voter suppression on Democrats. That's a, that's a fact. 
But as we've seen now, two election cycles in a row, the establishment Democrats, corporate Democrats, do voter suppression on the left. So they would want to stop Bernie's demographics from showing up, namely young voters, independent voters, and Latino voters. So anything they could do to keep the turnout down in pro-Bernie areas, they can do and they will do. And that might be what's going on here. Again, I don't know. I don't have all the information. But that dude is obviously uncomfortable and feels like they're, they're doing something wrong. And he, he has the conscience and says, I can't do this. So I don't know. You tell me what's going on there. But either way, it's not good. And listen, if people, if we had concern for human beings, you would postpone the voting. Two, two states postponed it already. I think three or four want to continue with it shouldn't be the case, man. You're putting people in danger by having the voting. You're putting people in danger by having the voting. There's no doubt about it. I would say this if, if Biden had a big lead or Bernie had a big lead. You shouldn't have the votes. Look at what's happening in the rest of the world. Look at what's happening in Italy. The longer we drag our feet, the longer we don't quarantine, the worse off we're going to be. And voting, generally speaking, even if you have a lot of polling places, you're going to have big groups of people. You're, by definition, you're going to have people touching, you know, the same areas, similar things. And that's definitely going to spread the virus. So don't do it. Don't do it. But it looks like the people who are in charge of the elections just don't care. Okay. There's an old clip that popped up again on Twitter and went viral with um, all the shenanigans currently going on in the Democratic primary. And I wanted to share it with you because it's certainly interesting and it shows how time can change people. If you want to pull the party, the major party that is closest to the way you're thinking, to what you're thinking, you must, you must show them that you're capable of not voting for them. If you don't show them you're capable of not voting for them, they don't have to listen to you. I promise you that. I worked within the Democratic Party. I didn't listen or have to listen to anything on the left in, while I was working in the Democratic Party because the left had nowhere to go. So Lawrence O'Donnell is an MSNBC host. Today, he would never say those words. He would say the opposite. He would say, vote blue no matter who. It's amazing what time does to people and what institutions do to people. Chris Hayes, you know, one of the better hosts on MSNBC, but that's not saying much. That's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. He apparently wrote a book about how, you know, corporate media corrupts the minds of the people who are part of it and they kind of lose touch. And um, the institution change, changes them for the worse. And you kind of get absorbed into whatever the Overton window is of the institution. You don't keep your outsider perspective. And that's pretty much exactly what happened to Chris Hayes. It really is. So, hey, I'm not saying it. They're saying it. Lawrence O'Donnell said it. I didn't say it. He said it. 
He said, hey, if you want to have any sway over the Democratic Party, you have to be willing to not vote for them. You have to try to drag them to your position. If they feel like you're a firewall and they can depend on you, they're not going to do Dickie McGee's acts for you. Okay, noted. Noted. So, I, listen, I, just as I told you guys in the last election in 2016, what did I say? I can't tell any of you what to do. It's up to you. You have your own mind. You know, you make your own decisions. You have your own litmus test, your own policy you know, ideas, um, and that's all fine and dandy. But what I can do is tell you what I plan on doing. Um, and what I said in 2016 was, m- me personally, I live in New York. New York is a safe state. I am not voting for um, Hillary Clinton, even though I think she's a lesser evil, and I'm going to vote for Jill Stein. Um, but what I did say is, if I lived in a swing state, I would suck it up and vote for Hillary. That's what I said. Um, because, again, I thought it was rather uncontroversial to say she is objectively a lesser evil when you look at, you know, she wouldn't have pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. She wouldn't have pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, her Supreme Court picks definitely would have been better. Uh, there are a list of policies where you say, mm, it's not even close on this, she's better. Fair enough. What I plan on doing this election, unless there are major changes, is not voting unless there are major changes. See, the problem is, guys, I swear to you, I'm not an unreasonable dude. The problem is that Joe Biden has repeatedly put his middle finger up to me and to the left. And when you say the day before an election, even if Medicare for all passes the House and the Senate and gets to my desk, I'm going to veto it. Well, listen, my dad would probably be alive if we had Medicare for all. So for you to say I'm not in favor of the policy that would have saved your dad, even if you make it a layup for me, I can't vote for you. I can't do it. Even if it got through and it came to your desk, you'd veto it. And he says, oh, you know, how are we going to pay for it? It saves money. It saves $5 trillion over 10 years. That's a bogus objection. So if you're telling me, sorry, Kyle, I think that we shouldn't have the policy that could have saved your dad's life, then I don't know what to tell you. Of course I'm not going to vote for you. Why would I vote for you? That's insane. We have 45,000 to 68,000 people who die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. What you're saying is I'm dooming a lot of people out there to the same fate as Kyle's dad. That's what he's saying. I'm okay with some number of people dying because they don't have health care. Then again, I don't know what you want me to tell you. He's, He's against virtually every policy I hold dear. For me, guys, it was never about Bernie. It's about the policy ideas. Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, legalizing marijuana. I hate to say this, but I'm convinced he would fight on none of those fronts. None of them. And I'm also convinced that whoever he picks for VP is also not going to be a concession to the left. What did Donald Trump do? He picked Mike Pence. Mike Pence beloved by the Republican base. Biden is going to pick somebody who's not beloved by the Democratic base. He's going to pick Kamala, he's going to pick Stacey Abrams, or he's going to pick Amy Klobuchar. So that will be another middle finger to the left, to the base. Okay, if you don't respect us, if you don't appreciate us, if you're going to fight for none of the policy priorities that I care about, then I can't vote for you. I don't know what you want me to tell you. And again, one of the big problems with what's been happening in the Democratic Party 
this move towards we're now doing what the Republicans used to do, which is, oh, it's your turn. Oh, it's Hillary's turn. Oh, it's Biden's turn. All the people who've been in the party and they've been team players all along, you're up. It's your turn. The problem with that is there's not even a doubt in my mind that he wouldn't pursue an agenda that I agree with. Not even one or two of the policies I care deeply about. There's no doubt in my mind. Why? Because we have the freaking track record of Joe Biden. We know how wrong he's been on all the issues. We know he supported the Iraq war and permanent normal trade relations with China and NAFTA and the Patriot Act. And he supported the Republican budget in the late 1990s. We know, we know, we know how bad his record is. So there's not even a doubt that he's not going to do the things that I support or even a few of the things that I support. So what am I supposed to do with that? At least with Obama in 2008, his was a little bit of a Rorschach test in the sense that you could read into him whatever you want to see. Some people who are more centrist saw more of a centrist. Some people who are on the left saw more of a lefty. You could kind of read into him whatever, but his record wasn't long enough for us to know for sure how he would govern. There was a chance he would act like Bill Clinton as a president, a neoliberal, or there was a chance he could have acted like FDR and really changed stuff. So in 2008, it wasn't, of course, I was happy to go to the polls and vote for Obama. I was like, hey, maybe he'll do some of the things I like, like end the Iraq war, which he spoke about all the time. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. But there was a chance he could have done the things I cared about. With Biden, there's no chance. His whole thing is, hey, I'm alive, and I'm not Donald Trump. You're not for our policy, so I can't be for you. I just can't do it. I would never in a million years ever vote for Donald Trump. He's been an abysmal disaster. His policies have been horrendous, increasing our, our wars. Now start, about to start war with Iran, randomly killed a leading military commander, um, mishandling a pandemic, disaster, 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 tax cuts for the rich, 83% of the benefits go to the top 1%. I would never vote for Trump. But none of the people running represent me. They just don't. Guys, and if you say, well, you've got to fall in line, why? I don't agree with neoliberalism. He's a neoliberal. I don't agree. I don't agree with neoliberalism. I don't agree with neoconservatism, and I don't agree with neoliberalism. So none of them represent me. I mean, it's, do you understand that that's like, the position I'm taking is like, in my mind, obvious. None of them represent the position I want, or even some of the policies I want. So what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And the only thing people seem to fall back on when you make this point is, what about kids in cages? Biden and Obama put them there too. That's not an exaggeration. That's a fact. There was a, a picture that went viral, and everybody flipped out and blamed Trump. This is a year or two ago. And coming to find out, the picture was taken in, like, 2014 under the Obama administration. So they put him there, too. Anything they fall back on. The next thing they'll say is, oh, look at this white bro. He's so privileged. That's why he, he gets to say this. Okay, but as Glenn Greenwald pointed out the other day, and he has the polling data to back it up, most of the people who take this position I'm taking are poor people and people of color. So in other words, it's the least privileged people who are saying, the system doesn't represent me, it's broken, I'm checking out of it. It is basically a form of protest to say, y'all better shape up and start representing us. And if you don't, well then don't cry if I don't vote for you. Represent me. Now, people will come out of the woodworks and shame, 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 shame. That ain't going to work. 
In the same way you all yelled, oh, my God, the Bernie bros need to work on their voter outreach. They're so mean. Okay. Oh, the Biden bros need to work on their voter outreach. They're so mean. If you want my vote, you have to represent the policies that I want. Now, in the case of Biden, unfortunately, even if he starts pretending like he's going to do those things, I know he's not going to do it. So it's a unique situation. Guys, we went through this with Hillary. I'm not going through it again. I'm not going through it again. You know, you got the most concessions you will get out of me in the Hillary Clinton situation, where I was like, hey, I'm in a safe state. I can't vote for her. But if I was in a swing state, I would suck it up and vote for her. I'm not even saying that this time. I'm not even adding the caveat. Oh, if you are in a swing state, oh, you suck it up and vote for Biden. Last time, the Democratic Party spit in our eye, spit in our face. Shut up. Take it. Here's somebody who voted for the Iraq war. Here's somebody who's praised NAFTA. Here's somebody who's been wrong on every major decision. Shut up and take it. And now they're saying it again. They learned nothing. They went from Hillary Clinton to Hillary Clinton with severe cognitive decline. That's what they did. If you want our votes, listen to us. Adjust. Fight for the things we want you to fight for. Then you get our vote. If I really believe that we moved Biden on some of the issues that I cared about, even two of them, if he made me believe, no, seriously, I'm going to make a living wage a priority, I'm going to do that, then I'd vote for him. But he's not doing that, and I don't believe him, even if he were to say, like, oh, yeah, maybe. So I don't know what you want me to say. I don't believe in neoconservatism, and I don't believe in neoliberalism. I believe in social democracy. And there's only one candidate who represents that. And I will be voting for him, and I want all of you to vote for him. And we'll see what happens after the primary. But one thing's for damn sure. I agree with Lawrence O'Donnell. And if we want to be taken seriously, we need to throw our weight around. And guess what? Even if we do that, they might still hate us, blame us, and shame us. To which I say, I don't care. Tough cookies. My, my demands are simple. You know what I'm in favor of. It's not ambiguous. You don't have to guess. You don't have to try to do some cringy outreach like, Pokemon, go to the polls. Yeah. You don't have to do that. You have to support Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, legalizing marijuana, or at the very least, let me know you will, you will actually do and fight for at least one or two of those things. I don't have that right now. So I'm not doing dick. And you can take it. Okay. All right, let's get to the debate breakdown. So it's debate breakdown time. Um, it was interesting. Bernie started out pretty weak. Bernie had a, a burst of uh, energy and dominance in the middle, and then Bernie finished weak as well. So he started weak, did okay in the middle, did well in the middle, and did poorly at the end. Um, listen, Bernie's behind big time. There's no sugarcoating it. There's no sugarcoating it. 
and he needed a dominant performance. As TJ Kirk said on Twitter, we needed Bernie to have his A-plus game and Biden to have his F-minus game. That didn't happen. I think we got Bernie with a 7 out of 10 performance and Biden with a 7 out of 10 performance. Biden had, you know, his towards the end he had parts where he was pretty incoherent and, you know, his brain wasn't working, but it, was, it wasn't as egregious as times we've seen in the past. I think Biden came out the gates hot. Honestly, for a lot of the debate, Biden was more aggressive than Bernie was, which is unconscionable and incomprehensible at this point. It's sad. It is. Um, because Bernie needed to come out guns blazing, and he only had a couple moments of that in the middle of the debate. But uh, I do want to show you this. The debate started with an eyebrow-raising moment. During a pandemic, look at the first thing that happens with Biden. Vice President Biden, let me start with you. We're in a reality right now that might have seemed unimaginable. A week ago, schools have been canceled for more than 25 million students. Grocery store shelves have been cleared out. March Madness, NBA games, Disney parks, Broadway, small businesses all shut down. And just today, the CDC issued a new recommendation that for the next eight weeks, events that consist of 50 people or more throughout the U.S. be canceled or postponed. What do you say to the American people who are confronting this new reality? First of all, my heart goes out to those who have already lost someone. <laughs> During a pandemic, the first thing he does in his answer is cough. Now, to be fair, the rest of the debate, he was fine. He wasn't coughing or anything like that. So I think he's okay. But uh, it was just very strange timing. I can't get mad at him, though, because that literally just happened to me earlier in the show. I had something in my throat, and I started coughing quite a bit. But I promise I don't have the coronavirus. It was just something in my throat. Um, anyway, what Bernie needed to do um, in this debate is a few things. First of all, the poll showed that Biden was hammering him on the issue of electability. Biden was doing so much better on that issue with voters. And so Bernie needed to find a way to hammer home that he is the most electable and Biden is not. And he didn't do it. So the argument that I would have liked to see was comparing Biden to Hillary Clinton and saying that we ran this experiment in 2016 and the choice of the establishment lost and will lose again. You can compare him to Hillary. You could compare him to, to um, Kerry in 2004. Um, and the other thing I would say, and this one Bernie touches on a little bit, uh, is that there's no way Biden could win without the youth turnout and I'm getting all of the young people. And I'm also getting overwhelming numbers with independents. So Bernie wins independence, Bernie wins young people, and you absolutely cannot win the general election without those two groups, and Biden's not getting them, and he won't get them. Now, instead of saying it like that, Bernie says, you know, like, we're doing really well with young people. Honestly, I think at this late date, that's just too weak. You're not connecting the dots enough for people. You have to connect the dots. You can't win in the general without young people and independents. I get them. You don't. But he doesn't say it like that, because that's impolite. And Bernie genuinely likes Biden. And so all the, my friend, my friend, my friend, my friend, my friend. And he just throws things out there without really connecting the dots for people. So that's the first thing. Electability, electability, electability. I would have repeatedly compared Biden to Hillary. Because also that would have made headlines if he compared Biden to Hillary. He didn't do it. He should have done it. 
because um, that'll actually that could be a light bulb moment for some people. Oh, actually, yeah, we did this in 2016, and the establishment won, lost. We're going to go with that again? Really? We're going to risk it? The second thing is we have the pandemic going on, and with the pandemic going on, if I'm Bernie, I'm stressing over and over, Biden's plan leaves 10 million people uninsured. That's not me speaking. That's him speaking. His own website says only 97% of people are covered. What about that other 3%, Joe? What about that other 3%? Um, what do we do with people who are going to go bankrupt as a result of their medical bills? Bernie should have repeated over and over, I'm the only candidate in this race that wants to cover everybody, and you need that leadership in this crisis. And then the third thing I would have done is, on the issue of the market crash, Bernie should have said over and over, hey, I represent the continuation of FDR's legacy. FDR is the person that got us out of the Great Depression. I will get us out of this. Biden bailed out Wall Street the last time around. I will bail out working people. Now, he he did kind of go after Biden on the issue of the Wall Street bailout, which is good. But again, he didn't do it. One of the things that's so important in politics is you have to, the way you frame things and the way you discuss them, it needs to be concise, to the point, punchy, and memorable. And it wasn't. I think, in my estimation, Bernie last night was very wordy. He was kind of like all over the place. And, you know, that's good in, if you want to be an intellectual human being and you're actually serious about fixing problems, but unfortunately that's not what sells. What sells in an election is short, to the point, punchy, and memorable. And I think things that are memorable is if he kept saying, I'm like FDR. My plans will get us out of this in the same way that FDR's New Deal got us out of the Great Depression. Biden's like Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. Biden will lose this time. But again, you know, he, he didn't say it. So not going to lie to you guys. Uh, what's needed now is a bit of a miracle. I don't think there should be voting happening on Tuesday. It's insane that some states are letting that happen. Two states postponed. A bunch of states did not postpone. It's crazy that they're allowing the voting to continue because we have a pandemic and you're putting people's lives at risk. I don't think we should have the voting now. But um, certainly if we do have the voting now, he would need a bit of a miracle because Biden's significantly ahead and Bernie did not do anything that I think will significantly change the nature of the race. I think however we went in to that debate, That's how we leave. And that's pretty upsetting, particularly because we have a stock market crash and we have a pandemic spreading. And Bernie is the healthcare guy, the healthcare guy during a freaking pandemic. And we're not connecting that dot of, hey, I'm the only choice in a situation like this. You need the healthcare guy during a pandemic. That is the most electable. I want to make sure everybody has the coverage. Everybody has health care. There's a pandemic. Everybody else is talking about half measures. I'm the real deal. So I don't think he did that. And I think nothing really, it didn't really change the trajectory of this race at all. And um, it is what it is. We're going to have to deal with the fallout of it and just hope for the best. All right, next. 
Joe Biden used the national crisis that we're currently going through to argue against universal health care. are saying the only true way to control this virus is through a national quarantine, requiring every American other than essential personnel to stay home. Would you take that unprecedented step of a national lockdown? What I would do is what we did in our administration. I would call a meeting in the Situation Room of all the experts in America dealing with this crisis. I would sit them down and I would do exactly what we did then. What is it that we need? Listen to the experts. What do we need? And with all due respect to Medicare for all, do you have a single-payer system in Italy? It doesn't work there. It has nothing to do with Medicare for all. That would not solve the problem at all. We can take care of that right now by making sure that no one has to pay for treatment, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for whatever drugs are needed, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for hospitalization because of the crisis, period. That is a national emergency, and that's how it's handled. It is not working in Italy right now, and they have a single-payer system. Notice what he did there. He said, the single-payer system is not going to fix this. Anyway, so nobody should have to pay for treatment, nobody should have to pay for drugs, and nobody should have to pay for the hospitalization. Joe, that's what a single-payer system is. That's what a single-payer system is. If you're saying they don't have to pay for it, who's going to pay for it? The government, the taxpayers. Well, that's exactly what a single-payer system is. Complete contradiction. Complete contradiction. Single-payer is not the thing that's going to work and going to fix this. Anyway, what we need to do is single-payer. I can't, bro. I can't deal with this. I can't. And Bernie's response, by the way, wasn't great. Um, But that's what he should have said. He should have said, you just said we can't do single-payer. Then you propose single-payer. The answer is yes. And a point that many other people have made is, it's great that you're seeing the light when it comes to this particular illness, but if somebody's going bankrupt because of, you know, cancer bills, that's also a national emergency to them. So, you know, why are we picking and choosing among, um, you know, different ways of getting sick? What's covered and what's not covered? Cover it all. Cover it all. Take that, take the same principle you're applying for this crisis and just do it across the board for healthcare. That's what every other developed country does. Now, to his point, oh, the system is not working in Italy. The problem is they didn't quarantine soon enough in Italy. So it kept spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. And it got to the point where the healthcare system is overburdened. And, you know, that's, if you don't get it early enough and you don't quarantine and lock down early enough, that's going to happen anywhere. Because there's not, you know, it's not like there's an ICU bed for the exact number of people you have in the country. You know what I mean? Like, that's the only way you can make it so we're not overburdened. Have a doctor for every person and have the same number of beds as there are citizens in the country. So the problem isn't a single-payer system. The problem is they didn't lock down and quarantine early enough, so the system got overburdened. Furthermore, the, uh, the countries that are handling it the best have single-payer systems or have universal health care systems. Um, South Korea is handling this better than almost anybody. Taiwan and Singapore are doing amazing as well. But South Korea locked down very quickly. Unfortunately, there was one person that spread it to an entire congregation of people, which led to the further outbreak. But they were able to get it under control, and they have a single-payer system, and they locked down relatively early, and they have way more beds, uh, ICU beds there than we do here. So you need both of those things. 
you need to lock down early to make sure it doesn't spread. And you need a single payer system to make sure, you know, people aren't devastated by this. And so what Trump did is he announced, oh, the treatment for this will be free. He did that in his Oval Office address. Then the health insurance companies came out and said, no, we didn't say that. We said the test will be free. So we went from treatment being free to no, it's just the tests. So now I'm seeing stories of even they, though they say, oh, the test is free, they're still charging $185 in some places. And they're saying, oh, the test was free, but the labor for the you know, clinicians to look at the results of the test and pass it to you, that costs money. So, guys, listen, I don't know how to make this case other than to say, yes, in a healthcare crisis, you want the healthcare candidate. Yes, you want to make it so that, I mean, imagine what we have right now, which is the treatment is not covered. How many people are going to go bankrupt as a result of this? How many people are going to be able to afford the medical bills? Because we don't have paid sick leave for everybody and we don't have Medicare for all, for the longest time now we've been dragging our feet and what's been happening? Somebody wakes up in the morning, you know, I don't feel too good. What am I going to do? I got to pay the mortgage. I got to pay the light bill. I got to do what I got to do. I got to go to work. So they go to work. They don't have paid sick leave. They're feeling symptoms. They go to work. They infect a whole bunch of people. And it was all because they didn't have the paid sick leave and they can't afford the medical bills. So, yes, the answer is a a single-payer Medicare for All system. Duh. Duh. And it's also quarantining and locking down at the right time to flatten the curve. Those are the answers. Anything outside of that is BS. Anything outside of that is people overcomplicating it. Or in the case of Biden, trying to obfuscate and distract. Oh, you know, single payer is not the way to go. And that's why I think we should have free treatment, free testing, and no charging for the uh, hospital stays and no charging for the drugs. That's single payer. That's single payer. That's single payer. So our country is in a uniquely bad situation. Don't take my word for it. Take the experts for it. The experts say, they don't have a national health care system in the U.S. They're going to get hit. We might get hit harder than anybody except maybe Iran because Iran, we're sanctioning them, so they're not getting, like, a lot of basic things that they need, like doctors need masks and more ventilators. We might be, you know, second to only Iran in terms of how bad it is here because we've dragged our feet repeatedly. We cut the CDC. We cut Health and Human Services. We got rid of the pandemic experts We're already behind. The administration was pretending for the longest time that they, oh, yeah, it's it's contained. It wasn't remotely contained. Now it's spreading like wildfire. Still, the medical bills are not going to be paid for, for sure. Um, So it's amazing to me that even in a time of a pandemic, you have people saying, hey, maybe a national health care system is not the way to go. It is the only way to go for us to have any chance. Guys, you need that coordination from the top down in a situation like this. You can't leave it to this, you know, fractured, scattershot system where it's a mess. You need that coordination. You need that, you know, centralization in order to implement policies and changes immediately. So this is, uh, it's really infuriating to watch somebody like Joe Biden say, a universal health care system wouldn't help in a pandemic, in a pandemic, Jesus Christ, man. That's so, that's so dishonest. And that's such an evil thing to say. He's so committed to neoliberal politics. 
that he can't help himself. Even in the midst of a pandemic, he's like, yeah, giving everybody health care is, you know, that wouldn't fix it. Certainly one of the things we need to do to help fix it, along with locking down earlier. So there you have it. He says single payer is not the answer as he calls for single payer solutions. Great. Now just expand that mindset beyond just this virus and you're there. Next. Joe Biden lied about his Social Security record um, and the media protected him. My Lord, Bernie, you're running ad saying I'm opposed to Social Security, that PolitiFact says is a stat, flat lie, and that the Washington Post said is a flat lie. Oh, well, let me ask you a question, Joe. Yeah. You're right here with me. Yeah. Have you been on the floor of the Senate? You were in the Senate for a few years. Yeah. Time and time again, talking about the necessity, with pride, about cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, cutting veterans' programs. No. You never said that? No. All right. America, go to the website right now. Go to the YouTube right now. Time after time, you were not a fan of Bo Simpson? I was not a fan of Bo You were not a fan of the balanced budget amendment which called for cuts in Social Security? Come on, Joe, you walk. Look, here's the deal. You're honest guy. Why don't you just tell the truth here? We all make mistakes. I, I am telling the truth. You said that I, in fact, I, why am I rated 96% by the Social Security Organization? Why am I viewed as a strong All that I said. I have laid out how I will increase Social Security. Well, that's good. I laid that out. I have laid out how I'm going to make okay, sure me... that it is, in fact, paid for. Jake. Go to JoeBiden.com. Look at my exchange with Paul Ryan on his desire to try to privatize and or cut Social Security. Okay. And understand how he manipulated it. No, all right. Joe, let me repeat it again. I want you just to be straight with the American people. I am saying that... You have been on the floor of the Senate time and time again talking about the need to cut Social Security, Medicare, and veterans programs. Is that true or is that No, it's true? not true. What that is, is not true? That is not true. What is true is, in terms of the negotiations that are taking place, how to deal with the deficit, everything was on the table. I did not support any of those cuts in Social Security or in veterans. Oh, and, oh, oh. You, Everything was on the table. All right, you're right. You just said it, including, in your judgment, cuts the Social Security impediment. In order to get the kinds of changes we need on other things related. But but we did not cut it. I I know, because people like me helped stop that. But, Joe, you just contradicted yourself. One minute, excuse me, one minute you said, I was not on the floor. The next minute you say, well, yes, there was a reason why I was worried about the deficit. Maybe that's good reason, maybe it's not. All that I am saying is you were prepared to cut and advocated for the cuts. Let, let, let's say, let me, I did not. I never voted to cut social security. Not talking about voting, Joe. That's not I what I said. Voted, but look, I voted to protect it. I was Just go look at the debate with Paul Ryan for the vice presidency. Look at what I did. And Bernie, will you acknowledge? Your campaign took out of context that whole exchange between Paul Ryan. Are you saying PolitiFact is wrong? Are you saying yeah, well, we've been washing the most PolitiFact is wrong a whole lot of times. But well, are they wrong on that, Bernie? Okay. Are they wrong on that, Bernie? Joe, Bernie, Joe, did you miss Joe? Did Joe? Wait a minute. I'll answer your question. You answer mine. I answered yours. No, you didn't. All right. One more time. Were you on the floor 
time and time again, for whatever reason, talking about the need to cut Social Security and Medicare veterans programs. No, I did not talk about the need to cut any of those programs. Okay, all that I would say to the American people, go to YouTube, it's all over the place. Joe said it many, many times. I'm surprised, you know, you can defend it or change your mind on it, but you can't deny the reality. So, Senator, because you've brought up Social Security yeah. and you've been talking about it, I want to ask you about something that you wrote in 1996. You were a member of the House. And you wrote an op-ed that said, quote, it is clear we will have to make incremental adjustments in Social Security taxes and benefits. You see what happened at the end there? You see what happened at the end there? The media jumps in to try to protect Biden. How do you have that, how do you have that with you? How do you have that on you? You have something that Bernie was saying in 1996 in front of you? Weird. It's almost like you knew that Bernie was going to hammer Biden on that, and Bernie is correct, so you're trying to run interference and help. And that's exactly what they did. Now, by the way, they're completely full of it. When Bernie said we need adjustments to Social Security, he means raise the cap. Get, raise taxes on the rich to continue to fund it fully. Biden's not talking about that. Biden's talking about either changing the retirement age or um, changing the way, the, moving to a chain CPI which changes the cost of living increases to reduce it, which is a cut. So, but Bernie helped found the Protect Social Security Caucus, and what the media is trying to do is, hey, no, 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 it's a wash, because you both wanted to uh, make changes. No, except Biden's changes are cuts, and Bernie's changes are raising taxes on the wealthy, raising the cap. Right now, you only pay social, social security taxes on about $120,000 worth of income, he wanted to get rid of that cap so that, you know, instead of a doctor and LeBron James paying the same amount in Social Security tax, he wants LeBron James to pay more because he has way more income. That's the adjustment Bernie's talking about. Biden's talking about cutting it. But the media jumped in. And listen, I'm sorry, but this does tell you a big problem in this race. And that problem is it was never just Bernie versus Biden. It was always Bernie versus the entire political and media corporate establishment. It was Bernie versus all the other candidates, and it's Bernie versus the media. And there's, I mean, he has a lot of firepower, and he does well, but he couldn't override all of them. He couldn't overcome all of them. And don't think this, this will be forgotten, because it won't. What I'm calling Bloody Monday, which is the turning point of the race, namely Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete dropping out and endorsing Biden, that day alone radicalized a whole new generation because they saw in order to even make the race competitive, in order to give Biden a fighting chance, you needed all the King's horses and all the King's men and Obama behind the scenes making a phone call, getting them to drop out and endorse Biden, Warren staying in the race to siphon votes from Bernie. You needed the perfect storm to come together to defeat Bernie. So they would rather have a neoliberal corporatist with severe cognitive decline run against Trump and lose than win with a social Democrat. So all I have to say is don't you dare come back asking for people's votes. Because it's one thing if you win fair and square, hey, everything was on the up and up. This wasn't on the up and up. We saw what happened in Iowa with the app that Mayor Pete and his team helped pay for, and then they're saying Mayor Pete won even though Bernie got 6,000 more votes. We see what's going on. We saw what happened with that. We see how in every single state, the ones that Bernie wins, oh, 
look at that. It's stuck at 80%. They're trying to count the votes, but it's, sorry, it's stuck at 80%. Anyway, Biden states 100% right away and sees winning in here. We're going to allocate all the delegates. Bernie states, sorry, we have a bunch of outstanding delegates that we haven't allocated. Guys, we're not idiots. We see this. To people who watch this show and pay attention, they see what's going on. They see how biased it is against them. They see the media is on Joe Biden's side. And then again, they're going to have the nerve to come to you after and be like, you're going to vote for Biden, right? If you had an open, fair, honest process where we felt like we weren't cheated from the beginning, I'm sure many people would. But in a situation like this, there are a lot of people who are going to check out and say, yeah, not happening, not happening. Um, now, the, other, the final thing I'll say on this is Biden is just a liar. He's, he's lying, and he's doing it as brazenly as Trump. He really is. Cause, and the funny thing is watching Bernie be surprised that Biden is lying. Dude, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised? They've done every dirty trick in the book to take you down. And now you're surprised that he's going to do, tell a lie about something like this? Of course he's going to lie about it. Because he has no out, Bernie. He has no out. These people don't like you. I know you like Biden. They don't like you. They don't respect you. They don't agree with you. So he'll just lie to your face. And the crazy thing is, Biden will probably get away with it. He'll probably get away with it. In the same way that Trump, in his debates, when he would lie, he would just bulldoze over his opponents. And, you know, the people would be like, damn, he, I know I'm right, but he's saying he's not right, and he's more forceful than I am, so he might get away with it. Just like Trump got away with it, Biden might get away with it. And, you know, listen, it's on Bernie to have been more aggressive all along, certainly post-Super Tuesday after Bloody Monday. After then, you had to go all systems go, bro. You had to adjust your strategy because now you need not just 30% to win or 35%, you need 51% got to adjust your strategy and go for the jugular. After Super Tuesday 2, there was no question. You had to go Inski. And this isn't that. This is like, he's, he's expecting Joe Biden to be like, yeah, I advocated cutting Social Security. He's not going to say that. He's been lying all along. He's going to keep lying. I don't know why you're surprised. That's where he, he should have said, Joe, you're lying. But he didn't. He'd uh, go to YouTube. You know, uh, It wasn't aggressive enough, in my opinion. But he's a liar. And just so everybody knows, when people talk about, oh, I'm trying to reform Social Security, or I'm trying to save it, or, you know, put it on the table, or pu- I'm putting every option on the table, those, that's all code word for cut it. Let's change the cost of living increases. Let's raise the, re- the retirement age. Th- those are all effective cuts. And Joe Biden was trying to say, no, 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 I wasn't cutting it. I was saying reform it. I was saying, you know, make... I was, try- I was saying we need to put everything on the table, the all weasel words, and what they mean is cut. And there are endless videos of Biden bragging about it on the floor of the Senate. I mean, he supported Republican budgets in the late 90s. The idea that he's acting like, I wasn't in favor of cuts. Of course you were. You supported the entire freaking Republican budget. So anyway, Biden is a liar, and it's shameful, and it's disgusting, and um, – You know, this is why, by the way, he's winning with older voters and getting obliterated with younger voters. 80% of younger voters are with Bernie. Why? Because, you know, those younger voters are much more likely to check stuff and Google stuff and fact check. And we see everything you're saying is BS, man. We see right through you. You're lying on a Trump-like level. So, no, I don't respect that. No, I don't respect you. And don't come asking for my vote. If you've been 
cheating Bernie all along. You pulled out every dirty trick in the book, and now you're just outright lying. You could piss off. Okay, let me take a quick break, and then when I come back, um, I'm going to show you Bernie obliterating, ethering Biden's record, and um, I'll have a few more things for you. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
All right, y'all. I'm back. On the week the world is ending, and that doesn't feel like an exaggeration. Okay. Let's bring this bad boy home. Here we go. Where was I? So Bernie's best moment in the debate with Joe Biden is when he just casually obliterated his record. Um, He went through it with quite a few specifics. And um, yeah, it's Bernie is an honest dude and he he likes Joe Biden. And so the only way he's comfortable going after him is simply by stating the facts of his record in a dry way. You voted for this, you voted for this, you voted for this, you voted for this. And, um, yeah, in this clip, I think it's, it's powerful, and it lands. Uh, this is a little bit about leadership as well. Um, Joe talked about bankruptcy. Joe, my memory is correct. You helped write that bankruptcy bill. I did not. All right. I and that bankruptcy Yes, he did. Way, when we talk about education, we have 45 million people in America struggling with student debt, some of them really struggling with student debt. And that bankruptcy bill made it impossible, very difficult for people to escape from that student debt. It was a very, very bad bill. You said, Joe, that a majority of the people in the Senate voted for it. You're right. Overwhelming majority. Overwhelmingly. Well, I voted against it in the House, and I was right. And I don't have to rethink my position, because that's what leadership is about, having the guts to take an unpopular vote. But it's not just bankruptcy. The difference between Joe and I on uh, higher education is four years ago. It was not a popular idea, Joe. Glad you're coming around now. Four years ago when I said that public colleges and universities should be tuition-free, people were saying, Bernie, that's a radical idea. Well, you've got states and cities and counties all over the country that are moving in that direction. And I'm glad that Joe is on board. But what leadership is about is going forward when it's not popular. When it's, an, when it's an idea that you get criticized for. So I'm proud of that fact, and I'm proud of my leadership on many issues. Joe, since the campaign, has come around. I talked about raising that minimum wage 15 bucks an hour four years ago, Joe. So did I, and I went out and $15 an hour? $15 an hour. New right. York City, go talk to the governor. I will talk to the governor. I'm not aware of that. Right. I am not aware I of that. should be aware. Look, all right, four Here's years ago, it was a radical idea. Very few people in Congress we're talking about. I want to Well, here, look. Let's get something straight about the bankruptcy bill. The bankruptcy bill already, you, it did not affect student debt for 90% because the law had already been passed. You could not declare bankruptcy for those loans that were from private institutions. You couldn't do it. And so the bankruptcy bill didn't affect that. It affected 10% of the people, the first bankruptcy bill, 10% of the student loans, number one. Number two. Now we're in a position where we're able to correct that problem. The fact is, if we, I hadn't stepped up and changed the law as it relates to people making less than $50,000, those who get, uh, for alimony and child support, then guess what? They would have been in the bucket, too. It was going to pass anyway. I made it, let me finish. I made it incrementally better. I did not like the bill. I did not support the bill. And I made it clear to the industry I didn't like the bill. Number two. This bill now calls for the opportunity to fundamentally change 
the mistakes it couldn't correct in the bill the first time around. And that is why I support Elizabeth Warren's idea, and it's a very good idea. Senator Sanders, go ahead. Well, this is kind of circular logic. We're going to reform the bill that I voted for. Well, if you hadn't voted for it, and if you had rallied other people, as I try to do in the House voting against it, we might not have the problems with it we have today. You know, what leadership is about, Joe, and it deals with, you know, whether you know, your opposition or your support, I should say, uh, for uh, regarding gay communities and the so-called Defense of Marriage Act. You remember that bill, right? You remember the Defense of Marriage Act. It was, you know, gay marriage today is considered a little bit differently than it was 25 years ago. I remember that vote. It was a very hard vote. I voted against the Defense of Marriage Act. You voted for it. I voted against the bankruptcy bill. You voted for it. I voted against the war in Iraq, which was also a tough vote. You voted for it. I voted against disastrous trade agreements like NAFTA and PNTR with China, which cost this country over 4 million good-paying jobs. You voted for it. I voted against the Hyde Amendment, which denies low-income women the right to get an abortion. You have consistently voted for it. I don't know what your position is on it today, but you have consistently voted for it. In other words, all that I'm saying here, we can argue about the merits of the bill. It takes courage sometimes to do the right thing. Yeah, uh, Bernie did an amazing job there. He really hit him over the head repeatedly with his own record, uh, which, again, is the only way that Bernie's comfortable attacking Biden, is to just say, you voted for this, I didn't. Um, The best part of that was probably uh, when Bernie says, oh, so now you're talking about reforming the bill that you voted for. Well, if you didn't vote for it in the first place, we wouldn't have needed that reform. That was a great point. It landed. It was good. Biden looks like a deer in headlights as he's getting clobbered with his own record. And the thing about Biden, man, and this is upsetting, but it's true, um, he's a good BSer. That's what he is. And he, he says things in a very confident tone, even though he's full of it. But oftentimes, unfortunately, the confident tone overrides everything to a lot of voters, especially older voters who will not fact check everything they just heard there. Bernie is totally right on all the substance there. Older voters won't care. They like Joe, and they're like, yeah, I like him. And uh, he seems confident, and he's electable, and so I'll vote for him. It really is disastrous. Um, But Joe lied repeatedly. He said, Bernie says, you know, hey, if my memory serves me correctly, you helped write that bankruptcy bill. He said, I did not. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But he just says the opposite and just overrides it with his confidence. Like, no, I didn't do that. But you did do it. But I say I didn't. We really live in a strange world where it's just a battle of narratives. Honestly, this, this reminds me a lot of what Trump did early in March in the early days of the pandemic here. He was just like, yeah, uh, you know, we, we contained it, almost contained it near zero. And it's, kinda, it's just like the flu. It's no big deal. And um, he was just, like, trying to override the reality. It's, it's like the ultimate form of uh, postmodernism. Override the reality by controlling the narrative and just be aggressive with it. And in some instances, you can get away with it. And in other instances, reality smacks you in the face, like with the pandemic. 
In this instance, though, he's probably going to get away with it because the media is not on Bernie's side and they will not fact check Biden and they will not follow it up. So um, he did help write the bankruptcy bill. And you're never going to hear about this again because they're just going to leave it at that. Oh, Bernie says he did. Biden says he doesn't. He didn't. Let's leave it at that and move on. Well, you're doing the voters a disservice that way. The other lie, which really got under my skin, Biden said, oh, yeah, I supported the $15 minimum wage. I was there. I said, you know, talk to the governor of New York or whatever. Biden supported a $12 minimum wage, not a $15 minimum wage. So, again, he's lying, and he's casually lying. And you heard Bernie say, $15? And Biden was like, yes. No, it's 12 We have a record of it. In 2015, Biden was pushing for a $12 minimum wage. So, you know, I think Bernie does a great job here. Again, I just wish there was more aggression. And I wish there was, you know, he said stuff like, that's a lie. And media, are you going to fact check that? Because I'm right and he's wrong. I would have loved to see that. Um, And, yeah, this I think this was the best moment in the debate because he goes through Joe's entire record, clobbers him over the head with it. Biden has nowhere to go but to BS nonstop. Um, and you can only hope that uh, voters are intelligent enough to see the reality and do the right thing. Unfortunately, with the numbers as they are right now, that's not looking likely, and um, we will have missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime with a -a once-in-a-lifetime candidate. But I can't wait to vote for Bernie here in New York, assuming the election isn't postponed because of the pandemic. I hope everybody else out there uh, as well can't wait to vote for Bernie because it feels good when you do it, when you know you're voting for somebody who agrees with you on the, on the policies, you're voting for social democracy, you're voting for Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars, you're voting for a principled voice who's been right about this stuff all along. And uh, yeah, you won't catch me dead voting for a person who shamelessly lies like Biden does and has a horrific record. Okay. All right, final story of the day. I just want to show everybody what we're up against and why this presidential race uh, turned out to be an uphill climb, to say the least. Here is CNN. Now, this video is in great quality, but somebody you know, just recorded it with their cell phone, and I couldn't find the original clip. But look at the lengths CNN goes to to disagree with Bernie and go and protect Biden. Their records, and, you know, we're not going to talk about the past. We're going to talk about the future, except let's talk about what happened 20 years ago. When you voted for this, you voted for that. You can see Biden sitting there thinking, what did I vote? Did I vote for that? Nobody, it's fine. It's done. They're not running for the Senate anymore. They're running for the president. You know, it's interesting about... Nobody cares. It's fine. Don't look at the record. Don't look at the record. You see why this has been an uphill climb the entire time? The race is not Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden. The race is Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden versus Mayor Pete versus Amy Klobuchar versus Barack Obama versus CNN versus MSNBC versus every single corporate establishment Democratic hack in the country who've been doing everything excuse me, that they can behind the scenes to bias it against Bernie. That's why this race is so hard. 
That's why it's so hard. What are you supposed to do with the media that actively misinforms people? I mean, what, what was just said there is indefensible. So the position of the media in this country, as opposed to, I'm going to fact check and show you their records and tell you who's telling the truth, the position of the media, the number one name in news, CNN, a commentator who's always on there, like, who cares? Who cares about their record? Who cares? That's the best indication of what somebody will do in the future is what they've done in the past. The fact that Joe Biden supported the Iraq war, for example, makes it very likely he'll probably start a war with Iran or Syria because he believes in intervention. It is, it's one of his actual beliefs. So we were wrong with every intervention that we've done in modern history, and he's likely to continue that. The trade deals, NAFTA, permanent normal trade relations with China, that obliterated the working class in America. Biden also pushed TPP. He's likely to make the same mistakes, except in his, they're not mistakes to him because he's representing the owner class, but he's likely to do those same things which are going to hurt working class people. I care. I care. Now, who cares? I do. I do. Anybody who is an actual human being, who's a working class person, who is impacted by these policies, they care. They care. The fact that Joe Biden's not going to push for a $15 minimum wage. In 2015, he said a $12 minimum wage. I haven't heard him say anything about it recently. Uh, he's not going to push for those things. Somebody working full-time, not making enough money to survive, they care. So it's just, this is how low they go, guys, to disagree with Bernie and to go at Biden. Oh, Bernie's bringing up totally accurate criticisms of Biden's record? Who cares? Drop it. He pushed for Social Security cuts repeatedly. You know what that means? As president, he would try to do a grand bargain where he gets Republicans in the room and they agree, hey, let's cut Social Security. Let's reform it to save it, as they say, which really just means we're going to cut it. We're going to either raise the retirement age or change the um, you know, cost of living increases to reduce it. So, yes, this – okay, so just so you know, if you're – I don't know if you're keeping score here – but here are the rules. Bernie Sanders is not allowed to go at Joe Biden um, on anything involving his cognitive decline. Can't touch that. Can't go after him on electability because they laugh Bernie out of the room and they say, no, Biden's more electable and you're not, even though Bernie definitely is. Can't go after him on that. And also now can't go after him on policy. This is a presidential primary. This is a Democratic primary. What's he supposed to go after him on? You can't go after him on cognitive decline. You can't go after him on style. You can't go after him on electability. You can't go after him on things he said in the past. And now you're saying you can't even go after his policy record? Understand that that is literally the dumbest thing anybody's ever said ever. It's unconscionable. Guys, they will stop at nothing to protect the beloved corporate establishment and to go after the left and the people who believe in social democracy and want to fix this country and want to help working people. The media is your enemy. Corporate media is your enemy. Now you can have a bunch of smear merchants out there that lie until the cows come home and say, that means you're equal to Trump or whatever. Nonsense. Nonsense. We want an objective, fair media that tells the truth. And the fact that they've gotten to the point where they say you can't even differentiate with policy is unforgivable because your job on CNN should be, hey, let's go through it. 
Biden said he supported a $15 minimum wage. Wrong. He said he supported a $12 minimum wage. Biden said he didn't write the bankruptcy bill. Wrong. He helped write the bankruptcy bill. You should be going through their record. Bernie's right. By the way, he said, oh, things in the past, even five years ago. Biden changed his position on the Hyde Amendment in 2019. He just did it. You know, the Hyde Amendment says no federal funding for abortion. So for the longest time, he said, right, no federal funding for abortion. Now we just changed it. So all these things are relevant. All these things matter. They have nothing but contempt for you if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter and you're a lefty. And you know what? I have nothing but contempt for them. And I'm going to make that known. They're going to know just how much I hate them. And... um this is, how fall the media, this is how far the media has fallen. Their job is to fact check and go through the records. And their point to protect Biden and go after Bernie is, who cares about the policy records? Noted. Nobody should watch CNN. The fact that my little YouTube show is better than them is pathetic. All right, guys. We are done. I love y'all, baby. Everybody stay safe. The country's going to be on lockdown very soon. Stay safe. Don't go outside. Don't get sick. I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.